Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. My name is Bodo Lang and I'm an academic in the Department of Marketing at the University of Auckland Business School. I'm delighted to introduce to you tonight's guest speaker, Associate Professor Mike Lee from the Department of Marketing at the University of Auckland Business School. Mike is an award-winning researcher and teacher. His research interests are in brand avoidance, consumer resistance, ad activism, and most notably, anti-consumption, where he is the director of the International Center of Anti-Consumption Research. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to tonight's guest speaker, Associate Professor Mike Lee. Thanks very much for that uh, very generous introduction, Bodo. So uh, as you mentioned, this talk is on anti-vaxxers and COVID, who will get the jab? So the first thing you're probably thinking is what is a marketer doing talking about anti-vaxxers or vaccinations or anything to do with COVID? Because I'm not an immunologist, nor am I a virologist, nor am I an epidemiologist, right? I, all I am is a humble marketer. Uh, but as Bodo briefly mentioned, my research area in marketing is about this concept called anti-consumption, or as the Americans call it, anti-consumption. So what is that? Briefly, I guess, explain anti-consumption uh, looks at the reasons against consumption. And so now some of you at home are probably making the link between why uh, that gives me a little bit of credibility to talk about anti-vaccinators or the vaccine hesitant. Um, so when I look at anti-consumption, it's usually to do with people avoiding, boycotting, resisting, rejecting brands, products, or services. So a classic example was, you know, back in the old days, Nike and the sweatshop labor, people would boycott Nike, or people that are anti-globalization may boycott or protest outside Starbucks or McDonald's. So that's your classic sort of example. So what I've done for the purposes of this talk and for some of the research I've been doing in the anti-vaccination movement is to apply some of those concepts in anti-consumption and bring them over to more of a public policy health sort of perspective, looking at anti-vaxxers, because some of those reasons are actually quite similar. So the way I see it as a marketer is that a vaccine is essentially a product. Um, it's something that you use for to obtain certain benefits, right? Um, the main difference, though, between a vaccine and a pair of sneakers, for example, is that um, unlike the sneakers, the vaccines usually have a ton of evidence behind them um, proving the, the fact that they work, proving their safety, and all these other things, as well as um, there's an entire, I guess, infrastructure or system around it to make it as easy to consume this product as possible. Yet, we still have a number of people out there, and it is a growing number. I'll uh, talk about some statistics and figures soon, but this, there's a growing number of people that refuse to or are very hesitant to try this product that is given free of charge in most places and has been proven to be good for you. Right? And so hopefully in the next half an hour, we'll look at some of those reasons why that is the case. Um, now, before we go any further, I just want to draw a distinction between anti-vaxxers and the vaccine hesitant versus those that do not uh, or cannot get vaccinated for other reasons, such as access, availability, or maybe they're just not in a position to receive the vaccination due to health reasons, right? So what I'm actually interested in and what anti-consumption is interested in are people that are, have the ability to consume a product or service, but choose not to. So we're talking about conscientious objection. And that is actually a term that uh, is used in, in vaccine studies uh, to classify people that um, refuse to get vaccinated. 
right? Uh, so there are those that don't get vaccinated because of access reasons, and then there are those that are conscientious objectors of vaccines. Um, and in some countries, that is a legitimate reason why you um, choose to not have your children, uh, often it is, uh, have your children uh, not vaccinated. So talking about the growth of vaccine hesitancy. So in 2019, the World Health Organization came up with 10 of the greatest threats to human health uh, moving uh, you know, forward in the next couple of decades. Uh, of those 10 threats to human health, seven of those were related to disease in some way. And of those seven, one was vaccine hesitancy. So the World Health Organization has already recognized before the pandemic, actually, so this was in 2019, they recognized vaccine hesitancy as, a, as one of the single greatest threats to um, human health moving forward for the next couple of decades. Um, to, draw, to provide some other figures, our closest neighbor, Australia, um, their number of conscientious objectors, so these are people that classify their children as conscious, of, well, they classify their kids as not receiving vaccines because they themselves are conscientious, conscientious objectors of vaccines. So that number in Australia grew from 16,922 in 1999 to 39,523 in 2014. So in a span of 15 years, so a decade and a half, that number, 16,000 to 39,000, uh, more than doubled. And, and so these were people that uh, identified themselves and their families as conscientious objectors of vaccines. Now, this trend was likely to have continued, uh, except for the fact that the Australian government implemented a no jab, no pay policy. So this is a policy that is um, a, a rather more forceful than, than what our government is willing to do, but it essentially ties uh, family welfare benefits with getting immunized. And once they did that, they were able to um, reverse that trend in vaccine hesitancy uh, or reverse the number of people classifying themselves as conscientious objectors of vaccines. More close to home, New Zealand, a uh, recent study earlier this year uh, surveyed 1,400 people, so 1,400 people about the COVID vaccine specifically. Uh, and of those, 24% uh, said that they were unlikely to, to have the vaccine if offered to them. And of that, 16% um, said that they would flat out refuse, right? So this is another clear case of vaccine hesitancy or even the more extreme anti-vaccination uh, sentiment. So, so, there's, so there's stats from Australia, there's stats from New Zealand. I'm doing some work with a colleague in the, uh, at the University of Normandy in France. He also uh, paints a very similar picture of vaccine hesitancy growing um, in France and uh, in other parts of Europe. And of course, we know that in America, it is also, there is more and more sort of um, uh, mention of, um, you know, conspiracy theories and other things to do with misinformation and uh, driving the anti-vax movement in North America. So it is on the increase. There's probably no denying that. So the reason is why. So as I mentioned, uh, I did some, uh, some work on the anti-vaccine movement uh, more than 10 years ago now, uh, in 2011. Uh, and I'm currently doing some uh, more recent work uh, specifically looking at uh, COVID-19 anti-vaccination. Um, there's some commonalities in the reasons we discovered uh, way back 10 years ago as to why people are vaccine hesitant or why people are um, anti-vaccinations uh, and why they're also probably um, anti the COVID-19 vaccines today in this day and age. Um, so the reasons I will start, so there are four reasons. Uh, the first one uh, starts off at, at quite a high level, sort of a more abstract sort of um, reason. 
And as I work through the four layers, uh, we'll start to, you know, the audience will start to recognize some of these reasons, uh, perhaps in people that they know quite well, maybe even in themselves. So the point of today isn't to cast dispersions on the anti-vax movement or to, to make fun of people that are vaccine hesitant. It's to really understand, get in their minds as to why they have these reasons against vaccination. And as I go through these four layers of reasons, um, we'll start to see, you know, why vaccine hesitancy is on the increase. Um, so the first reason is an ideological opposition. So this is the, a philosophical um, resistance against the idea of vac vaccinations. Uh, and on the one hand, you have the extreme thoughts that you know, vaccines are unnatural. Um, so there's a real trust and belief in nature uh, as, as a reason to be against vaccines. That vaccines are artificial, they're man-made, they're, they're not good for you because they're not natural. And if, if you had everything that your body needed um, in nature, as in good nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, and you were not living a stressful life, all that, then you should be able to fight that, fight off the disease without the vaccination, right? So that's, that's sort of on the ones, I'll call that the left-hand extreme, right? The people that believe in nature and, uh, and disbelieve or are very mistrustful of big pharma. On the extreme right, you have people that believe and have faith in God. And so their reasons here um, are kind of similar. And it is along the lines of rather than nature, it's that God created the human being in a perfect mold and that the creation of God has everything it needs to fight the disease. And so therefore these people on the extreme right uh, trust in God. And so really this is one of those, so anti-vaccination uh, is one of those things where the extreme left and extreme right uh, actually are doing the same thing or agreeing on the same uh, sort of fundamental sort of um, structures that this thing that has been made, in this case, uh, either by Big Farmer or by Big Brother, um, both of those things are not to be trusted, the medical industrial complex, uh, and therefore that is the reason why they reject vaccinations, uh, both in COVID-19, as we see very clearly, um, as well as in other cases of anti-vax or vaccine hesitancy. Um, and so people are operating at that very abstract level, um, where it's bordering on a, you know, some of the stuff we see in conspiracy theories, uh, are very difficult to change. In fact, I would say that it, it's nearly impossible to change the way they act. And so if any plan of herd immunity uh, relies on these people changing their mind, it's probably not going to happen. So let's take it down one level. The next level down is freedom of choice, right? And obviously these reasons that I'm talking about are not mutually exclusive. We can see how resistance against Big Brother or Big Farmer will also relate to freedom of choice. So with freedom of choice now, we're seeing you know, a reason that is probably a little bit more tangible to some of us. We may know people in our family circles or in our friend circles that actually have this as a reason. And, and the way it goes is that, you know, if you're told what to do, or in the case of the Australian no jab, uh, no pay policy, if you're essentially forced or punished for not doing something the establishment wants you to do, then you will push back against it even more. So in psychology and in marketing, there's this theory coined in 1981 by um, a scholar called Brem called reactance theory. And reactance theory is essentially the theory that when you take choices away from people or when you tell people what to do, they will react against that um, hegemony or that power, that domination coming towards them. And they'll, um, they'll want to do everything to resist what they're being told to do. And the, the interesting thing about reactance theory is that, um, you know, if you take a bunch of choices away from someone, uh, they will like the choice the only choice that you've given them less than if they had these other choices to refuse by themselves, even if 
those choices that they've been given uh, were never even in the top of their consideration set. So just the mere fact of taking away those choices um, makes the, the final remaining alternative less attractive than having those choices there in the first place that they were never going to be interested in in the first place. So with COVID, uh, the COVID vaccine or any other vaccine, you can see how, and this could be the reluctance why our government does not want to implement a no jab, no pay policy, because when you start forcing people to do something for other external reasons, um, rather than the intrinsic reason of, of the the act you want them to do themselves, like get, getting vaccinated, when you start to tie that to external reasons such as rewards in some cases we're seeing, or punishment, um, that takes away the value uh, of the, the thing that you want them to do. And so with reactance theory and freedom of choice, um, we see this happening uh, where people are saying, you know, sure, they might really, really, really encourage us to do this, but if we, if we accept this um, direction without any question, then what's the next thing that's going to give? You know, they see it as a wedge uh, in, in sort of a, a bigger um, domineering force that is coming at them. So this ties pretty closely to the previous example we looked at uh, in terms of ideological opposition and uh, mistrust of big farmer and big brother. Now, when we talk about freedom of choice, obviously the counterbalance is freedom from harm. And so that's a tension that's always uh, needing to be, to be thought of or considered. So people have a right to choose not to do a medical procedure, but other people also have a right not to be harmed by people not doing that medical procedure. So as I mentioned before, there are people that can't get the vaccine because they're immunocompromised, not in the right age bracket or whatever it may be. So do we weigh up their freedom from harm more greatly or the freedom of choice that may need to be um, you know, decreased in order to sort of uh, get people to comply? So that's a tension, I mean, and we can't answer that in half an hour, but it is some, one of those discussion points, uh, thinking points that, that we have to go through when we consider freedom of choice versus freedom of harm. So now on to the third reason. This is a risk to benefit ratio. So this is the third reason why people uh, are vaccine hesitant for anti-vax. And uh, uh, as I go through this reason, we'll be able to see how many of the people we know in our lives um, are thinking along these lines, which is why vaccine hesitancy is such a real thing. So the way risk to benefit ratio works is that um, you have the risk of the disease, which you know um, is up here, because if you catch a disease, it's gonna give you a whole bunch of grief, um, and it may even kill you, or may you just might spend a lot of time in hospital, right? Or the recovery might just be really crap, right? And then you've got the risk of the vaccine, because every medical procedure has has you know some risk so the risk of the vaccine is kind of down low right but the way the risk to benefit ratio works is that as more people get immunized and vaccinated um, and as less people have a disease that is stressing the health system and more people have access to you know medical facilities because the system has capacity then the risk of the disease actually goes down and immunization becomes a victim of its own success because the risk of the vaccine never really changes it's always it's always going to be at the rock bottom already right it's already been tested um, and, and all those sort of sort of you know, steps and procedures have had to have happened in order for it to be approved for human use. So the risk of the vaccine is always low, but the risk of the disease is variable and it moves up and down depending on how many people are actually immunized. So this is one of the paradoxes of vaccination is that a highly successful vaccination campaign uh, is actually, it becomes a victim of its own success. Uh, and the other paradox related to this risk to benefit ratio is that the people that are thinking, oh, there's a risk to the vaccine and there's a risk to the disease, I'm going to weigh it up and not take the vaccine. Um, they, that sort of thinking only works if no one else is thinking the same thing. So they actually want everyone not 
to be privy to their ideas because if that was the case, then no one would get vaccinated and therefore they would not be able to remain out of the vaccination circuit, right? So they need everyone else to get vaccinated so that they can um, sit back and not get vaccinated and not have to risk any, any sort of risk at all, whether it be the vaccine-related risk or the disease-related risk. So that was risk to benefit ratio. Um, you know, and, and you know, later on, I'll cover some more figures about what the actual risk of a vaccine-related side effect might be, uh, just to put some things into perspective. Uh, and the final reason is uncertainty. And this is probably the biggest reason that all of us can identify with, obviously. You know, because we hear the stories about how some of these vaccines have been pushed through at the speeds that are unheard of using technology that's never been used in humans, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that um, does not really help with the uncertainty that people uh, feel. Um, and in this day and age, when there's so much misinformation out there, uh, it further confuses people and it makes people uncertain about what, whether they should or shouldn't take a vaccine. And if they take a vaccine, which brand of vaccine they should take. So uh, one of the, the new findings that we're discovering looking at COVID, the COVID-19 anti-vax movement with my colleague in France is that um, in the past, branding uh, and country of origin, which are marketing concepts, were never really taken into account for anti-vax reasons. But in our more recent research, we find that uh, country of origin and branding, uh, in terms of the brand of the vaccine that you're offered, uh, does, does start to make a difference, which is a new thing, which is a little bit concerning because theoretically, um, vaccines should be treated almost like a commodity. They should theoretically be all the same. And so then, then you don't have people kind of wanting a certain brand versus another brand, but I'm sure many of us here uh, know people uh, that would definitely prefer a certain brand of vaccine from a certain country versus another brand of vaccine from another country, right? And this has never been heard of before in previous work on anti-vaccination uh, um, research. Um, so, uh, so those were the four reasons, ideological, freedom of choice, risk to benefit ratio, and uncertainty. And so with uncertainty, you know, where does that come from? Well, you know, uncertainty to do with vaccines has, has been around ever since vaccines have been around. So the earliest case of uncertainty affecting vaccine uh, hesitancy was in um, 18, the 1800s when the smallpox vaccine was invented. And a part of that process involved taking something from cowpox. And so there was already a lot of propaganda back then about how can you take something from a cow to cure something in a human? Look, I don't trust this, right? And so that creates uncertainty. More recently, many of you will uh, be aware of Andrew Wakefield and his 1998 um, study on the MMR or measles, mumps and rubella uh, vac vaccine and its link to autism. And that study has obviously since been disproven, but that's enough to sow the seeds of doubt, which then leads to more uncertainty. And in this day and age with the COVID-19, I mean, I don't need to spend too much time talking about how much uncertainty there is out there. Um, and the problem with um, when people don't feel that, that they're able to um, voice their concerns or ask questions because they think they'll, they'll be judged by mainstream media or, or other people uh, in their circles, is that they, they will go underground and go down the rabbit hole of misinformation uh, and be isolated in these echo chambers that keep reinforcing the same, the same uncertainty that they had to begin with, but amplifying them, right? And so this uncertainty is the, the biggest threat I think it's the main reason, and it's it's the reason that we probably have the most um, ability to control. Because, as I mentioned earlier, we can't change the ideology of someone. If they really think that, you know, God made humans perfect, and 
vaccines are unnatural, et cetera, then that's a very difficult uh, thing to change. Whereas with uncertainty, if we can understand a little bit more about misinformation and how it affects uh, our thinking, then I think we, we have a better shot here. So I'm going to rattle off some figures now just to give you some perspectives, uh, because obviously people, the uncertainty is leading people to think that there are vaccine-related risks, right? So here's some numbers, 0.0372%. 0.0046%, case fatality, right? Six elderly people, 33 people in Norway, blood clots. Okay, so a couple of random things I just said. Now, for some of you, those things will ring a bell. Blood clots, 33 people in Norway might ring a bell. 2% case fatality rate, that might ring a bell. But I can guarantee you those first two numbers, 0.0372 and 0.0046, you don't even know what I'm talking about. And so what those are is 0.0372 is the chance of a side effect from a COVID vaccine. Uh, and 0.0046 is the chance of a severe side effect from a COVID vaccine, right? 2% obviously is the fatality rate on average. I know it's not a perfect number, but if we average the really high versus the very low, approximately it's about 2% case fatality rate uh, given the data that we have for COVID. So those numbers, um, I'm using them to illustrate that people can't really comprehend numbers beyond what they say is the human experience. So when we talk about nanoseconds or millions of years or billions of dollars, people don't compute, right? Another example, it's kind of unrelated, but I think it, draw, it illustrates this point really well, is that uh, the Zuckerbergs, for instance, donated $250 million to some charity, right? So we understand 250 is a massive number. But what we don't really understand is that it was only 0.238% of their wealth. And the rest of it, of course, they don't pay tax, right? So, and similarly, Jeff Bezos um, donated $10 billion to, climate, to fighting climate change. 10 billion, so that's massive, right? Uh, out of, but he's got $200 billion of wealth. And on average, he pays 0.98% tax, right? So those numbers are like, well, I don't get this, but 10 billion sounds like a lot. He sounds pretty generous to me. Well, theoretically, everyone in listening to this podcast is more generous than Jeff Bezos because you're paying more tax than he is, right? And so these numbers work against this. They're actually a disadvantage for us because we can't understand these big numbers. So when I say something like, you know, you've only got a 0.0372 chance of having a side effect of COVID, that does not compute. We understand 2% as being low because our human experience operates within that sort of 100 realm. So we think 2% is low. That's a really low chance. If, I, if, my, if Bodo and I got a student evaluation rating of 2%, we'd be in trouble because that's such a low number, right? But 2% is actually massively higher than 0.0046%, which is the chance of a severe um, reaction to COVID, right? It's so much higher, it's, it, we can't even compute it. To put another perspective, 0.0372 is one in 3,000 and 0.0046 is one in 25,000. So there's a one in 25,000 chance of getting a severe side effect from a COVID vaccine. Uh, however, there's a one in 50 chance of dying from COVID, right, based on the data that we have. And that's the other problem with science is that data is always changing, which increases more uncertainty. But I guess the point of showing all this is that, you know, we, you know, people, um, they think in stories, they don't think in the statistics, right? Um, another great statistic, one in 3,838,000. Three, uh, 3, uh, so that is the chance of winning lotto, right? Yet, everyone, well, a lot of people still buy a lot of tickets. So this goes to show that people don't really understand statistics, right? They believe in stories. 
Uh, we've been raised to be the center of our universe, and so we look for information that uh, supports our narrative and confirms our pre-existing biases. The problem with science is science works on a bell curve, right? It focuses on the stuff that's in the middle, the boring stuff, the averages, what happens to most people most of the time. Stories, on the other hand, are bimodal, right? And so that means that we focus on the extreme lows and the extreme highs, the very negative information, the very positive information, because our minds were designed to do that, to pay attention to things that are different. And that's why misinformation is so sticky because it's giving us information that is not the norm, that is beyond average, right? And so we stick to that. Uh, one in 3,838,000 is also about the same chance you have to die of a fatal shark attack, right? Yet people jumping in the ocean, they're thinking, you know what I'm thinking sometimes, um, that odd, uh, those odds get much worse if you're diving off the western coast of Australia, that's about one in 16,000, yeah, but re regardless of these numbers, you know, people are, we think of, we think of these num numbers, uh, very small things that happen, and they, they spook us, uh, and so of course, it makes sense that people will believe in side effects, even though statistically speaking, they're very low. So just to wrap up, I want to give you guys three things to, to pay attention to, to, um, to combat this misinformation, this vaccine for misinformation. So the first thing is uh, this concept called epiphenia. So epiphenia is the phenomenon that people have where they see patterns where patterns do not exist. They make links between bits of information that are not actually causally linked, right? So epiphenia is basically what it means to be human because when we evolved, we needed to, it was safer to make random connections between disparate pieces of information than not to do that, right? You hear a funny sound, lion jumps out, kills your neighbor. Next time you hear that funny sound, you're better to, to, to predict that, that that might happen, even though the two things might not be related, right? So evolutionarily, we're designed to look for patterns that may not actually be true. Second, so be aware of that. Second thing is the availability heuristic. So this is this idea that the more information you, you are exposed to, the more you think it's true. Once again, misinformation works that way because it, the algorithms feed you the same information you've been looking at because that re, it's like a reward system, right? And so the more information you're looking that confirms the bias, the more you see that information, the more you see that misinformation, the more you think it's true. And the final, I guess, um, uh, head wiring that makes us uh, susceptible to misinformation is the confirmation bias. So a lot of people already know this. So this is the fact that people look for information that confirms the pre-existing biases. And you can see how this also affects misinformation and, and vaccine hesitancy. So in conclusion, people think in stories, not in stats. Now storytelling could be used to reverse the trend of vaccine hesitancy. Unfortunately, those stories may not be very exciting nor very memorable because they're based on averages and bell curves but hopefully awareness of our cognitive biases that's epiphenia the availability heuristic and confirmation bias can help us develop herd immunity against misinformation so thank you very much i think i'll hand over now to bodo to shoot some questions across that's great. Thank you very much, Mike, for your interesting talk. I've really enjoyed that. It's a topic that's obviously really current, so that's fantastic. I can already see a number of questions by the audience, which is great. But before we do that, I will take the MC's privilege, which is, of course, to ask the first couple of questions. So, Mike, you spoke about uh, anti-vaxxers and their potential impact on vaccination rates. And this was excellent because it's you know very focused on COVID-19 vaccinations. It's obviously a matter of life and death. But my first question is, what are the lessons from this particular example that you've chosen for other organizations that maybe wish to shape how the public behaves? So, for example, if you think about government agencies that wish to decrease the road toll 
one agency that wants to increase citizens' participation in recycling. What sort of lessons uh, are in your talk for those types of organizations? So I'm just trying to transfer your learnings to another context, basically. Yeah, that's a great question, Berta. Um, I think the four reasons I mentioned, so ideological, freedom of choice, risk to benefit ratio, and uncertainty. I think those four reasons could very much apply to something like uh, reducing the road toll, getting people to wear seatbelts, recycling. So for example, ideological, so, so we're, we're interested in, so I'm interested in people that like are against recycling in, in the context to your question or against wearing a seatbelt, right? And so there, there might be an ideological reason at that highest point, uh, but then moving down, there's also freedom of choice, right? So people don't like to be told that they have to recycle or they don't like to be told that they want to have to wear a seatbelt, but sometimes that's what you need to do, right? Uh, then there's the risk to benefit ratio, which in some, I guess, another way of thinking of that is the cost. So what does it cost a person to do what they, what you want them to do? So the cost of a seatbelt is pretty low. It takes a second, you know, you make it click and then, and then the benefits probably outweigh that cost uh, a great, a tremendous amount. Recycling on the other hand gets a little bit more complicated sometimes. And so the cost there in terms of inconvenience, time and effort might be a little bit greater so that you could address it at that point. And finally, uncertainty. So this affects all those public policies that you talk about, you know, with seatbelts, there's probably a lot of data to take away the uncertainty. Uh, but with recycling, there is, you know, there is still uncertainty out there, right? Obviously uncertainty in terms of which plastics go where, and also uncertainty in, in terms of, you know, how much of the stuff actually makes a difference. How much of this effort I'm putting in actually ends up being recycled. So those sorts of things will uh, feed into the anti-sentiment of whatever it is the public policy is, is trying to do, definitely. Um, I've got one more question, if I may, before we get to the most uploaded questions by the audience. So my second question is, um, is what, the lesson, what are the lessons of your talk for non-government organizations? So let's say Mike in Bodo's ice cream shop, or I don't know, so, you know, so how, can, how can they utilize your insights in about anti-vaxxers? Are there any, any insights where you can say, look, if you're a commercial marketer and you're selling a product or a service, this is what I think are you, I would suggest based on your insight? Yeah, I mean, I guess we could once again go back to those four reasons. They could be the reasons that people aren't going to your ice cream shop. You know, what is your ideology? Are they ideologically opposed to dairy and ice cream? Uh, in that case, if you knew that, you could introduce a line of vegan-based ice creams, for instance. Uncertainty is a big one that affects, you know, all companies beyond public policy as well. So if people are uncertain of what your brand stands for, that is often a good reason why they might not want to do business with you. They're not sure where you stand on certain things. They're not sure how your product is produced. They're not sure how your supply chain is vetted. Or, uh, they're, they're unsure of the service that they will receive when they go to you. So, so once again, those reasons are, are pretty, um, I guess, transferable in that sense. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. That's me with my questions just for now. So um, that brings us to the questions by the audience. So I'll read out the questions that have been most voted. The first question is from Joel. Given the multiple actors generating information or misinformation about the, and the assumptions about public health measures, are there any marketing approaches that governments can consider that meet the groups where they are? Yeah, that's a great question, Joel. I mean, meeting where they are is essentially understanding what, what the reasons are against, um, and, and as I mentioned, there's those four broad reasons. I mean, I'm, uh, the other reason I'm glad you've asked this, I got this in the mailbox, it's anti-COVID, propaganda essentially and it says things like the you know vaccine companies are exempt from all liability vaccines are currently experimental they can make you sterile that sort of stuff 
Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of this information floating around anyway. And, 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 you know, I guess to a certain extent, we are also guilty of not meeting them where they are because we see propaganda like that and we immediately sort of cast it aside as a conspiracy theorist or someone not to be taken seriously. And we, we, we imagine that engaging in that conversation will be so fraught and so painful that we often leave them to do their own thing. Uh, and on the flip side of that, people that may have uncertainty or may have their other reasons are just a little bit unsure, they're not anti-vaxxers but vaccine hesitant, feel like they can't have the conversation with us either because they feel like they will be judged, right? And so nobody likes to be, feel like they're being judged and so they'll go down a rabbit hole of their, their own choosing. And there's some interesting research uh, looking at social social how social media serves anti-vaxxers versus mainstream vaccine proponents. And what they saw was that while the bulk of it was pro-vaccine, so that's mainstream, what they did find, which was a little bit disturbing, is that the social media activity of anti-vax groups are far more infiltrating, they're far more dispersed. So they're not conglomerated into these big areas where it's easy to find. They're actually spread out and they crop up in places you wouldn't expect it to. Almost like a cancer, an infiltrating sort of tumor. Uh, and so, yeah. So I don't know if that answered Joel's question, but, um, you know, I guess understanding the reasons where is meeting them where they are sort of psychologically uh, could be a start. But there needs to be some pretty brave individuals out there willing to take the time and punishment to do that, I think. That's great. Thanks, Mike. We'll get to the, um, to the next question. Um, Brent asked this one. Hey, Mike, can any amount of marketing persuade anti-vaxxers to vaccinate? The vaccine hesitant? potentially those that are operating with a bit of uncertainty. So those odds that I spoke of, if they're uncertain, um, also the risk to benefit ratio, people thinking there's a risk to the vaccine, which there is, but there's also a risk to the disease. You know, the risk is actually one in 25,000 to get something from the vaccine versus one in 50 if you get COVID, right? So, so um, when you put it in those terms, which is, it's interesting to see that it's never been communicated in that way, um, but that puts into perspective the risk to benefit ratio and hopefully that reduces some of the uncertainty. So those people um, might be convinced using some sort of communication method. Um, others at the higher level ideology, uh, freedom of choice, you know, don't tell me what to do, it's my body. Um, they, they are going to be a bit trickier. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Mike. We've got another, um, we've got a whole raft of questions lining up, which is fantastic. I've got another one uh, by Joel. I don't quite know if you can answer this, but you know, if you like, have a, have a good crack at it. Um, what insights have you drawn, if any, from success factors from countries like Chile and Israel with high vaccination rates that other countries can apply to engaging the public in working together to mitigate health risks? So in other words, what are the lessons that we might be able to learn from countries where vaccinations have been taking up pretty, uh, pretty swiftly? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm, I don't know. I know that Israel has a, probably one of the world's highest vaccination rates, which is, I guess it's a very well-contained country. You know, obviously Singapore is a similar case. Uh, they also have the benefit of the, the government being able to be a little bit more forceful. <laughs> um, uh, and I say that because I have family in Singapore and I, I've lived there before. So, and so I'm aware of the culture and the, the, the influence the government has there. Um, Chile, I'm, I'm very ignorant about, so I'm not sure what's happened there. Um, so I think every country is just so different. And we obviously have our own natural benefits of being an island nation that currently has no community transmission. So we're at a different urgency level 
so to speak, as some, a country like Israel may have been, and certainly Chile, uh, and even Singapore, right? Even though they're somewhat of an island off a peninsula, they're still very, a lot of their commerce depends on trade and they are the, the node in a network, whereas we're fairly self-sufficient up to a certain degree. And so some of that urgency and, or lack of urgency on our part is, is probably something that we could, um, you know, learn from these other countries where they've had to take take it take on board the vaccination program with a lot more urgency. Next question is from an anonymous attendee, and you've kind of touched on this, but I think it would be great if you could see if you can can answer this a little bit more. And the question is really straightforward: How much does social media amplify irrational attitudes? And I certainly have a view on this, but I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot. I think the the difference in anti-vax sort of sentiment when I did the research in 2011, where we looked at blogs and all that sort of stuff versus now where it's like just hundreds of millions of people that are affected by this misinformation and not necessarily, I mean, I, I like how broad the question is. Um, it's, you know, it's not just irrational attitudes to do with vaccines, irrational attitudes in general, right? Political, environmental, climate change deniers, whatever it might be. Uh, it has a it, it has a huge role in amplifying it because we talked about those echo chambers where and the confirmation bias, which is something that's in our heads anyway. Those two things are a perfect cocktail for for going down a rabbit hole of finding information that confirms your biases, being surrounded by information that only uh, is comfortable to hear, uh, and so therefore that uh, I think they have a big role. Um, I've got another question from another anonymous attendee. Um, it's a great question. Hey, Mike, isn't there a huge difference between the consumer decision process around buying a product or a service and the position of anti-vaxxers? You know, one is very commercial and one is kind of more maybe ideological or whatever. So this person, it's not really kind of a, it's not a straight, it's a very open question, but see if you, see what your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, there is and there isn't. I mentioned earlier how, uh, in my view, vaccine is essentially just, it's like a product. The only difference is that it's a free product with a lot of evidence behind it. Um, but the, the way anti-consumption works for products in general can also be at that ideological level. So we have anti-globalization movements, uh, anti-free trade movements, uh, anti-multinational protests, boycotts, uh, and they are all operating on that ideological level of, uh, you know, they don't like companies getting too powerful, having undue influence in government, um, using private data, having access to private data to sell you more stuff, to brainwash you into becoming a consumer. So all that sort of stuff. Um, so, so yeah, so the, the, there isn't a huge difference, I don't think, uh, which is why when I made the transition uh, for this particular research project, you know, looking at anti-consumption to anti-vaccinators, it wasn't too surprising to see that some of the reasons, those underlying reasons of don't tell me what to do, or do I really trust the, the establishment, or how, what will this product actually do to me? All those sorts of um, reasons are, are pretty similar. Um, I've got another question from uh, David, uh, and David is asking, what do you understand to be the relative frequency of those four reasons or concerns for folk who have yet to make up their mind, i.e. are openly searching? So I think, he, I think David is speaking to those four dimensions you've been, you've been talking about. Yeah, so um, I don't have any hard data, David, um, in terms of frequency, but what I, what I think it is, is that it's like a pyramid. So the, the ideological reasons, the conspiracy theorists at the top are probably a smaller percentage. Uh, and as you go down, the uncertainty is a bigger percentage. 
this a little bit of hard data in terms of their study that was conducted in New Zealand earlier this year, the 1,400 people uh, that were surveyed. So 24% said that they were likely to refuse, uh, likely not to have the vaccine, whereas 16% said they would flat out refuse it. Okay, and so I think that speaks to me in terms of that 60% is probably the tip of that pyramid, the ideological opposers, and then the 24% is probably somewhere in the middle. It's a little bit more like, you know, I'm not quite sure what the risks and benefits are. And then there's people that we know that are in that uncertain category, right? That are like, just like, oh, it's, it kind of feels like they're rushing this through. Or I don't know, you know, so that's um, a quite a, it's quite a common um, reason to be a little bit hesitant. Mm. You know what, this reminds me a little bit, and it just sort of goes, goes back to one of the earlier questions about whether this is really any different, this seems to be very different from commercial products uh, and services. But in a way, you can actually argue there might be different segments, right? Um, so different groups of consumers who have very different reasons. So not all four reasons might be equally, or it's highly unlikely, in fact, that all four reasons are equally important to all anti-vaxxers, so to speak, you know? So it's very yeah. likely that there are very clear camps to me what would you what's your view on that yeah i think so and i think um you know this might answer the next question because i've got the question thing here as well where the the person is asking for evidence of correlation between anti-vaccine and education so uh yes there is there there is a link uh the people that are less likely to get vaccinated usually are also lower in education um but you know there's also movements pockets of, I guess, boutique anti-vaxxers, like in California and, and those sorts of places when I was doing the work on the MMR vaccine, where they were highly educated, sort of uh, taking the ideological um, natural stance. Um, but on average, if you think about the reasons as well, um, you know, sort of this, there's either blind faith uh, in something as being unnatural or ungodly or, 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 or artificial, uh, and then there's the uncertainty, which is, you know, in order to be uncertain, you actually have to be a little bit wise because you have to know that not all the information is perfect, right? You know, the smartest people we know are often the most uncertain because they kind of just overthink everything and, and they get a little bit of paralysis by analysis um, <laughs> because they know that the science is changing, the data is not perfect, the, you know, the questions are not um, framed correctly uh what are you actually analyzing uh by what standard are you making these so so it's completely normal and i would suspect that the uncertain um would have a higher level of education and as we go to that sort of more belligerent don't tell me what to do um and other sort of more ideological oppositions it is going into sort of that faith territory of, of just believing something and and not wanting to be uncertain about it even your own anti-consumption attitudes Here's another question from an anonymous attendee. Really interesting. Are there differences between the spread of pre-COVID-19 anti-vaccination rhetoric? So, you know, anything, you know, all the people that have talked about, you know, being anti-vaccination before we had COVID-19 and the current COVID era anti-vaccination rhetoric and um, that you've noticed, such as motivations or the people who are talking about it. Are they the same arguments or is it a different kind of thing? Okay, there are a couple of differences, and we I actually talked about this with my colleague in Norman, Normandy. Um, so the one big contextual difference that we see now that was not the case in the MMR vax anti-vax movement is that unlike MMR, COVID starts off well. So MMR starts off in a state of herd immunity to begin with. So the stakes are very different 
because there is already herd immunity because the vaccination process for MMR was so good. And so you could be an, it was easier to be an anti-vaxxer because you already had the herd immunity to rely on. COVID is the opposite. We're starting with no herd immunity. And so the urgency to get vaccinated and therefore the pressure from the government and others to get vaccinated is much higher, obviously, because there is no herd immunity. So that, that, um, that pressure, that difference from starting point uh, changes perhaps the um, the conversations a little bit, um, but in terms of the other reasons I talked about, ideological freedom of choice, risk to benefit ratio, uncertainty, those are fairly similar. Uh, what we have also discovered that is different, as I mentioned in the talk, was this branding effect that's coming into play. That was never a thing with uh, the anti-vaxxers of the MMR era um, and the country of origin effect. So those two things, country of origin and um, you know, brand preference is something that us marketers deal with all the time, right? So it seems like a no brainer, um, but it was actually surprising to, to see that COVID is the first vaccination movement where branding and country of origin is go seems like it's having an effect on consumer preference. Which is actually, it's not the greatest place to be because then you're going to start having people, as I mentioned, holding out, waiting for that luxury brand of vaccine, uh, you know, from Germany because they make things good there. So that's the country of origin effect versus other vaccines that are probably just as good. Um, but because of the branding and because of the country of origin, people are more reluctant, more hesitant to take those. Uh, so that's, that's, that's a bit concerning. Hey, just a, just another thought. Um, if you were Ashley Bloomfield or Jacinda Ardern, and you're clearly neither, um, what would be your suggestion in order to or to maximize the vaccination rate? What do you rely? Obviously, you've talked about the four dimensions, which was really useful. But would you say, look, we'll, we'll just use soft marketing tactics, which is normally what, what companies do. You know, they, they make their product really available and they lower the price and they have fancy advertising with beautiful models, all these sorts of things. Or would you do something else? What would, you know, because there, there are other more heavy-handed approaches. What's, what do you think is, is the right way forward? I think the best way, which, is kind of, which they're using a little bit now, is, is um, using sort of informal, personal, uh, relationships of people, um, people that are, you know, I guess, um, closer to the groups of people that you want to be vaccinated, similar to them, um, you know, rather than, I mean, it's all good to see celebrity endorsers getting vaccinated and high profile people. That's fine because that kind of gets the, the awareness out there. But I think, as you know, because I know you did your PhD on word of mouth, um, in these sorts of sort of high stake situations, and you know, it is a medical invention. Um, I think that word of mouth or having someone you can trust, um, have a discussion and take you through the facts and the odds, and the statistics and the data, um, that is still the best sort of marketing for, for something like this. The problem with going with the sort of more commercial marketing, trying to make it cooler and, and, you know, look at what the celebrities are doing and all that is that it's still, it comes across as inauthentic, right? And there, we already know that there's a trust issue to do with these sorts of things for some people, uh, whether they they already feel like you're trying to pull the wool over their eyes or they're trying to take away some freedom from them, trying to encourage them a little bit too, too, uh, keenly. Um, so I think, yeah, so that, that sort of, uh, word of mouth, uh, referral, uh, personal relationship uh, is probably the best way to do it. 
I think we're nearly out of time. I think we just have time for one last question. Um, and this one's by, uh, by Joel again. You mentioned storytelling could be an effective tool in convincing the public to adopt public health measures, etc. Are target audience profiles and or identifying people that change their mind to tell their story and show impacts of hesitation helpful? Yeah, I think that would be. Yeah, definitely, because that's coming from a, a, a person that is close to the people that are hesitant uh, and B, the reasons why they change their mind are probably valuable reasons uh, that other people that, have, they, that are similar to them or you, similar to what they used to be like uh, might benefit from hearing. Yeah, so that's a great suggestion. You know what this reminds me of a little bit? This is, you know, this is a little bit what we do with tobacco cessation too, right? Um, you have testimonials by people, you know, who have gone through the same process. So they're, they're ideally, and they're, they're people who have done it. And so they're authentic. Um, and I think people can relate to them and they can say, well, if, if that person can do it, you know, maybe I can do this too. And so I think, to me, I think there's a lot of value in having, having people just like you rather than Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie or somebody overseas telling you to do something. Uh, so I think it's that authenticity and that sense of connection, isn't it? You know, that, that, that makes it powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, the authenticity. That's great. Fantastic. Well, Mike, we're nearly at the end. Is there, are there any last, is there any last comment that you would like to make before I close off? I, I saw a question before about whether I've had the jab or not. Um, I am getting mine tomorrow, actually, at, at uh, I think 9.30. So I, I rang up uh, and chased them under group three conditions because I have asthma. And so I'll get my first jab tomorrow. So, yeah. So that concludes our question and answer session. I would like to thank Mike again for his stimulating session. Ka kitiano.